I don't get to come here very often. Um, we are one church that meet in multiple locations, and we're not really built on any personality other than Jesus. So it really doesn't matter who's before you. It's who we present to you. So I do, though, love when I get the chance to come to Agassiz. This morning, we're talking about grumbling. Isn't that exciting? Church folk know nothing about grumbling, but for those that we might know who grumble, we need to, we need to hear what's being said this morning, right? Okay, what makes you grumble? It, it might be, you know, you, you, you spend some good amount of time cleaning the house only to turn around and it's like it's completely messy again. Like what happened? There's some other people in your house that maybe clutter it right away again and you... Does Highway 1 make you grumble? Even just on my way here today, I'm, I'm just tempted to speak my truth about Highway 1, you know? Uh, <laughs> you ever grumble about how customer service fails you at your favorite restaurant or coffee shop or when you're going to put new tires on the vehicle and something happens? You ever grumble about that? When Instagram is down or Facebook, ever grumble about that? Politics make you grumble? Maybe a little more pointedly, any politicians make you grumble? Maybe the things that friends or family members do that you don't agree with never cause you to grumble? See, grumbling and complaining is just a part of what we do. It's woven into to our essence of who we are but what if it isn't supposed to be? And what if there's a compelling reason for it not to be? Okay, that's where we're spending the bulk of our time this morning. But before we get to looking at grumbling, we, we just want to do a little bit of review and then kind of set our, ourselves up for, for the text that we're looking at this morning. Last week, in the first uh, number of verses of Philippians chapter 2, this beautiful little letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, this letter written to the Philippians, uh, we're, we're just taking a few verses at a time this summer and looking what, at what the, this apostle said to this church. It's a book of great encouragement. A call in nearly every few verses to rejoice about this and have joy because of that. And yet there, there is a church that, that we, we saw last week needs to grow in humility for the sake of their unity. And the way that Paul wants to show them that they should live like that is he, 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 he quotes to them what was already popularly known among the churches at that time, the Christ song. Um, and and it, it talks about the, 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 the highest heights, the great heights that Jesus was in the heavens and the great depths to which he went, the cross, paying the penalty for your sin, and, and, and that no one's ever traveled from such heights to such depths. No one has had such humility as Jesus has had. And so we saw that last week, and in light of what Jesus has done in this world-altering event, and we're called to emulate that humility in our lives, now Paul works his way into the implications of Christ's humility and this humility that we are to have. And so we pick it up in verses 12 and, uh, through to 18, but let's just look at verses 12 and 13 first. Paul says, therefore, my beloved, because of the heights that Christ was and the depths to which he went to save you and to show you this humility of God 
As you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Paul planted this church, but now he's in Rome in prison. And he's saying, even in my absence, continue to live this way. And he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, with reverential awe. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, just at a quick glance at that, those couple of verses, we see something interesting going on. In verse 12, he says, work out your own salvation. And then in verse 13, he says, because it's God who works in you. And so a natural question that we would have in, in reading this text is, okay, but who works then? When it comes to my salvation, who is it that does the work? Verse 12 seems to say, I do the work. Verse 13 seems to say, God does the work. So what do we do with that? So for the, this little beginning portion of the sermon here, I want you to put on your theology class 101 hats, okay? We're just going to go to school for a little bit here to, to do some biblical study so that then we can take those hats off and sit as parishioners and kind of just hear what God wants to say to us. But we have to do a little work first. Are you ready for that? Sunday morning work in the heat. The air conditioner seems to be working, so I think we'll be okay. When the word salvation is used in the scriptures, it's used in three different senses, past, present, and future, meaning sometimes you'll read the word salvation and it'll be in the future, it'll be meaning the future tense of salvation. Sometime you'll read that same word in the scriptures and it'll, it'll actually mean in that context the, the past work of salvation that Christ has done. And so I just want to show this to you so that you're able to see how it's being used in these verses. When it comes to the past tense or sense of the word salvation, it's referring to the immediate salvation from the penalty of sin at the moment of conversion. Here's the heady theological word for that, justification. When you came to faith in Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus, you were justified at that moment seen as spotless because Christ's righteousness was imputed to you as yours. So God looks upon you and sees the righteousness of Christ. Why? Because upon the moment of salvation, this past salvation from your conversion, he sees you as spotless. You have been justified. That is one of the senses of the word salvation in the scriptures. There's also a future sense. And the future sense is God's ultimate salvation from the presence of sin. The heady theological word for this is glorification. Christ will come again, and when he returns, he will set everything right, and there will be no more sin. Glorification, the future tense of the word salvation. But then there's also a present tense of the word salvation, which is the ongoing salvation from the power and practice of sin. Heady theological word, sanctification. The present tense of the word salvation, just to, to, to kind of rifle it through again, justification deals with the guilt of sin. Glorification deals with the ultimate defeat of sin. Sanctification deals with the present help we need in fighting sin. Justification having to do with forgiveness. Glorification having to do with ultimate deliverance. And right smack in the middle, sanctification, which is present help. This word salvation, are you with me? Three tenses of the word salvation. So here's the reality. We don't only need forgiveness and ultimate deliverance. We also desperately need present help. 
And the reason we need present help is because we live in a fractured, fallen condition. Each one of us remains sinful. Though if you're a follower of Jesus, you have been justified. So I'm going to give you a little hint. The word salvation used in verse 12 here is about present tense salvation, sanctification. This ongoing present help we need from God and this present work that we do in working out our salvation. Dallas Willard helps us when he wrote it this way. Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Huge difference. Grace isn't opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. These verses aren't a a charge to earn our salvation through works, but an encouragement to live out the far-reaching implications of our salvation by applying effort. Let's just look at a few uh, passages of Scripture where we see um, our work and God's work colliding. Ephesians chapter 2 puts it well when it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This isn't your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's not a works righteousness. It's not a works salvation. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So there is work that we're actually even created to do, called to do, but it's not the work that saves us. God created us to work, just not the wrong work, to work for our salvation. We aren't to work for it. We're to work out our salvation. Look at Psalm 127, verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. So are we to go about building the house? Yeah, you bet. But unless God is doing this this work underneath it all, our work is in vain. Colossians 1.29 puts it this way. For this I toil, I sweat, I give everything. And, And what he's referring to is to help the Colossian church mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. I toil, he powerfully works. In 1 Corinthians 15, 10, Paul says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. He's referring to all the other apostles. I worked harder than all of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. See, what Philippians 2, 12 and 13 are telling us is that we are to work out what God has already and continues to work in. That's how we are to look at these verses. Can I just show you two misinterpretations of this verse, and then we'll finish with theology class 101, okay? I just want to show you how we misapply these verses. One of the ways we can misapply it is this, I work for my salvation. That's what verse 12 is saying. I work for my salvation. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, I will. God is not doing a supernatural work in me. It relies on me. It's my effort that saves me. That's a misinterpretation, misapplication of the verse. But you can also go in the opposite ditch, which is God works out my sanctification. It requires no effort from me. I'm going to sit on the couch and God is going to transform me. He's going to take my selfishness and make it selfless as I watch Netflix. Isn't that amazing? (laughs) That's not the present 
tense of salvation. Think about, man, Harrison Lake is just down the road. What a gorgeous and windy lake, hey? It's one of those dangerous lakes. You got to be careful on Harrison Lake. Here's the thing about a sailboat, right? You can sit there with the mast not up and wait for the wind to take you across the lake. It won't happen. Come on, God, I need your wind. You're the only one who can move us, and you sit waiting. That's not how it works. With a sailboat, you lift the mass, and it catches sail, and God breathes upon the sailboat of your sanctification and moves you across the lake. Just like the Apostle Paul, we're to toil, we're to sweat, we're to labor in this present tense of salvation, striving for holiness, knowing that as we work it out, he's working it in, okay? Now, this is a huge encouragement, a huge encouragement, because he's going to call us to some stuff. He calls the Philippian church to some things that still apply today. Difficult things, like not grumbling anymore, even though we're fantastic grumblers. And we think, how could I ever change? It's, it's my language. It's, it's how I speak. I am a grumbler. We are to remember the present tense of salvation. Work it out as he's working it in. He's calling you to something, and he's going to help you as you lean in. So let's transition here, because those who are working out their salvation all the while know that God is working in them as they work, and he wants us to see that there's a lot of joy there, joy for him, joy for them. So let's pick it up in verses 14 to 18, and this is where we'll land for the morning. Do all things, here's the imperative, without grumbling or disputing, all things that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. He's like, I want to see this work out in you so I didn't waste my time with you. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. If my labors and my sufferings can be for your good, it was all worth it. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. That he's doing a work in us, Jesus, and it's all worth it. But if we look at the context, this Christ song that was in the verses last week, the passage last week, I mean, it's, it's astounding. It's gorgeous. It's, you put that on a mug, right? You, you put that over the dinner table. That's the, that's, that, that sings. And, but but the, the implication, he, he works it out to, the very next thing he calls people to is don't grumble. And you're like, really? I would have thought, like, read the Bible every day. Make sure you go to church every single Sunday, Right? Become more holy. Like, you, you think that there's these, these maybe more grand ideas that he's going to draw on after those verses. But the very next thing he says is, so don't grumble, okay? Why? Well, that's where we're going to spend our time. But listen, just bef- as we're going to talk about grumbling a lot this morning, let me just define it. Grumbling is murmuring or muttering. It's, it's what we say under our breath to ourselves about someone, right? It just kind of like... Why is he up there and not Eldon? Why isn't Pastor Eldon up there? Why is this? Who is this guy? I don't like this guy. He seems to be dressed too casually. I don't. I know it's summer, but I don't care. I don't know what he's. You know, that's 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 grumbling. Okay. 
but it's also what you say to someone in a hushed whisper about another person. Can you believe this guy? Can you believe this guy? This is un- un- are you seeing what I'm seeing? This is unreal. 11 o'clock. 11, o- 11 o'clock. No, my 11. Yeah, you see this, right? right. All right. It, I, I need to just say this little caveat. It's very different, grumbling, very different than voicing honest concern. There's always a place to voice honest concern, and it comes from a good heart that wants unity. It comes from a place that says, I want their good, I want my good, I want health, I want this work through. Always a place for honest concern. But Paul says there's no place ever for grumbling. Grumbling is private complaining. It's how you feel that you don't make widely known. It's your secret displeasure. And only a select few get to hear it. So we're going to unpack this this text in three ways. Why do we grumble? Why shouldn't we grumble? And what's the antidote to grumbling? Why do we grumble? Why shouldn't we grumble? And what's the antidote to grumbling? So first, why do we grumble? Joshua Rothman in in The New Yorker wrote a cheeky little... um, thing on grumbling, and here's what he, part of what he wrote, an excerpt. Everybody grumbles. It's a basic human behavior. Still, it sometimes seems as though everybody's doing it more. Last week, I spent the day keeping track of my social interactions, asking myself what percentage included grumbling. The answer was nearly 100%. I had grumbled. My friends had grumbled. If I'd overheard a phone conversation on the street, it had involved grumbling. It's the kind of thing that makes you think, given its omnipresence, it's tempting to say that grumbling may be the quintessential modern speech act. Would you agree? Grumbling, it seems, is just a part of who we are and what we do. Now, people have grumbled throughout history, but, but we could probably argue that the internet has made our grumbling more audible. Like, I, I define grumbling for you, and it's like, like that, that, that kind of secret displeasure you voice to a few around you. The internet has made it your secret displeasure that you post for all to see. It's made it more audible. Grumbling seems to resonate with our contemporary outlook. We find ways to bemoan pretty much everything. I mean, without grumbling, what's left to talk about? What is there to have in common if it's not a mutual distaste for the ways of others? Friendships are built on grumbling. We both hate that thing, and let's talk about it. Oh, I'm so glad I have a kindred spirit in you. We both loathe those things. Then speak our minds about it. See, Paul uses the language here of Deuteronomy 32.5 to describe a crooked and twisted generation. He, he wants the, the, the readers to, to see that language. It actually was used to describe the Israelites in Deuteronomy 32. So you're, you're supposed to conjure up what happened there. And here's what happened there. God delivers the Israelites from the hand of oppression and slavery in Egypt. And before he does that, he, he, he sends, God sends Moses to the Pharaoh to say, let my people go. And Pharaoh says no, and he makes the Israelites work even harder as slaves than they were before. And they grumble about Moses. Oh, this Moses. And then right after, they're actually released. They they, they escape. They they get to the other 
the, this miraculous parted Red Sea. They get to the other side. They arrive. Moses is like reciting a song of praise for God's deliverance. And he turns around and they're bemoaning that the water in the wilderness is bitter. God has just freed them from slavery, parted the sea. They've walked across the other side. They get there. They look around and say, our water's not filtered here. And then there's not like great food options. And they sit around with each other and go, remember, remember those beautiful days of slavery when we ate such great food, hearty meals. They bemoaned that their, their, their food wasn't protein rich enough in their freedom. As God was working a miracle, guiding them by a pillar of cloud, pillar of fire, eh, the food's not great. Their momentary praise to God for redemption was quickly replaced with grumbling. Here's the key. Grumbling was the sin that derailed Israel after they were freed from slavery. So, so Paul is saying, look at Jesus who frees you from a more tyrannical slavery, slavery to sin. He's freed you. Don't let it get hijacked the way it did for the Israelites. You know what hijacked it for them? They're grumbling. They grumbled when they lost sight of God's redemption. And we will grumble if we lose sight of our hope and salvation. At the end of the day, grumbling isn't a heart response to this circumstance or that circumstance. It's a heart response to God. Grumbling, regardless of circumstances, reflects the heart. So why do we grumble? We grumble because we forget God, just like the Israelites. We forget God and his goodness, and we operate in the world as gods, expecting everything to go according to our own plans. And when they don't, we grumble. Why? Because we forget God and his goodness. But second, why shouldn't we grumble? It feels so good. If I didn't have that grumbling you know, outlet, I'd probably... Get angry with the person, and that would be worse. Or, you know, I'd work, there'd be just, there were tons of negative ways that I could deal with this frustration of mine. Grumbling is just a way of just kind of getting it off my chest. Well, again, verse 14 says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. So that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that it did not run or labor in vain. Do you hear why we aren't to grumble? The purpose for not grumbling is so that the light of Christ can shine through you. Meaning that if you are a grumbling person, it will not. The light of Jesus isn't going to shine through the life of the grumbler. So why shouldn't we grumble? So that the light of Jesus can shine in the world through you. See, grumbling with other believers is a destructive assault on the unity of the church. It's been really sad that we talked about this around the office, really sad to watch some of these celebrity megachurch pastors fall. It, it seems to unfortunately be a regular thing. And you think, oh, it'll never be that guy though, and then it is. Oh, it'll never be that guy, and then it is. And it's, it's destructive, it's sad, it's awful. And we need to really reflect on the, the, the circumstances that create these this celebrity culture and the way that churches are structured that way, it's an awful thing. But you know what's killing far more churches in North America? 
than the celebrity pastor fall. It's church after church after church after church after church after church after church that are full of grumblers. People voicing their quiet displeasure about what he's wearing, about this decoration, about that ministry and this ministry leader and this direction they're going, and not in a way that's voicing an honest concern for mutual good, but a destructive killer of churches, and it's happening over and over and over again. Why? Because we love to grumble, and it kills. But even more pointed than that, what Paul's getting at is grumbling with those outside of the church keeps Christians from shining distinctly in the world. And that's his big hang-up. Do not grumble so that you can be a witness. Do not grumble so you can stand out as distinctly different. Yeah, everybody else grumbles. Don't grumble because then you'll shine. Shine for Jesus. Imagine with me that right now you get a text on your phone and it tells you that this long-lost relative of yours, you didn't even know existed, has left you $10 million. Okay, you get that text right now. You get that text. You're like, I didn't even know this person. And they leave you $10 million. And then imagine with me that your very first thought is this. Oh, that's going to make doing taxes this year so complicated. Oh. What would everybody else think about you? You are insane. What are you doing? Do you not understand? That's amazing. It would cause people to question your comprehension of the gift. No? But every time a Christian grumbles, you know what it does? It causes everybody around to question your comprehension of what you claim to believe. Clearly, he doesn't believe it. Clearly, she doesn't live it. It reveals ingratitude, and it reveals a lack of perspective. Jesus called followers of Jesus, his disciples, to live precisely the same way Paul is calling disciples to live. You are the light of the world, he says in Matthew 5. A city set on a hill can't be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Disciple, you are to shine. You are to reflect. You are to refract the light of Christ. It should shine from heaven onto you and out into the world. And our grumbling, our complaining, Paul says, blends us into the darkness. Now, historically, one of the ways that people have, have tried to get away from the crooked and twisted generation so we wouldn't just be like it is, I'll use the, frame, uh, the phrase, monastic seclusion. You know, monasteries, someone who lives the monastic life. We, we think of it as a group of people who live in a monastery somewhere, but it started out singularly, mono, one person out in the wilderness by themselves, closed off from everybody else in the world. Why? So they could become holy and untarnished by the twisted, crooked generation. So it would be, it would be the, the John the Baptist, you know, having honey and locusts and wearing crazy outfits and stuff. But this followed in the early church. But the early church was given a different mandate than John the Baptist was given. We were called to make disciples of all nations. 
We were called to shine as lights in the world. And so this idea that churches themselves would kind of have this monastic seclusion and create their own little bubble of safety and, well, the only mechanic I'll go to is the Christian mechanic because then he won't use curse words when I go there and also I can give him business and that's what Christians do for each other. We just give each other the business and and then we know all the Christian people who do the work and then we can stay in this little world and... By God's grace, we won't have to witness to anybody or even shine for them. You know, like it's just such a strange thing. But this is the monastic seclusion kind of life. Did that get too real? I don't know. I'm seeing some. But my favorite, my favorite person, and there's many in church history who, who, uh, who, who live the monastic life, was a, guy, a Syrian monk named Simeon, Simeon Stylites. He wanted to separate himself from the, the world, and, and the way that he chose to do that was set himself up on a nine-foot-tall pillar with a little platform. He built railings around it so that when he was sleeping, he wouldn't fall off, you know, like a toddler in a bunk bed. He created little railings for himself on the top of his nine-foot perch so he could be removed from, from, from the common folk and the twisted, crooked generation, you know, just elevate himself from it and live that monastic life. But he started to get really frustrated and annoyed because people would come up and they think, wow, look at this religious man. Look at this pious man. Look at this man living such a life of sacrifice. He must have such wisdom. So they'd go to the bottom of the pillar and they'd call up to him for his wisdom. They wanted him to tell them what they should do. And this really bothered Simeon because he was trying to live the monastic life, you know? So he changed partway through and went from the nine-foot pillar to the 50-foot pillar. And he lived on the top of this pillar for 37 years. My, out of my love for you, I had to discover, like, what did he do for food? And what did he do when, you know, anyway, and I learned these things, and they're unnecessary to tell you. But it, needless to say, he had a system, and it seems strange. See, Simeon and others like him were thought to be spiritual primarily because of their withdrawal, but the Bible does not support this view of spirituality. no. We are called to be this sanctified people who as we toil and labor and strive, we know that as we're working out that salvation, he's working it in so that we can be amongst a twisted and crooked generation, encouraging fellow believers in the faith, but so that we can go out and we can shine in the midst of this place that so desperately needs Jesus. See, instead of being preoccupied with grumbling, the church's preoccupation should be with proclaiming the word of life. One theologian put it this way, just as right doctrine without right character is hypocritical and ineffective, so also is right living ineffective if believers are not proclaiming gospel truth. Right? We can miss it. We can miss it. If we speak of Jesus without living for him or live for him without speaking of him in terms of holiness, then our witness will be ineffective. We are to do both. We are to strive for holiness, and we are to speak of this Jesus who is transforming us. A family friends of mine, these three daughters, um, their mom passed away a few years ago. But these, uh, these friends of mine, their, their mother would say to them every day when they were growing up and they were going to school, every single morning she'd hand them their lunches and say, Go shine your light today, girls. Go shine your lights today. What does she mean? Go shine for Jesus. Go make much of Jesus. 
Go proclaim Jesus. Go reveal Jesus. Go live for Jesus. Go be led by the Spirit today. Take on the humility of Jesus today. Let the ways of Jesus and not the crooked and twisted generation be your guide today, girls. Go shine as lights today, girls. And that's precisely what Paul is saying to us. So why shouldn't we grumble? So that we can shine as lights. Lastly, what's the antidote to grumbling? Well, remember, forgetfulness, right, leads us to grumble. So therefore, the antidote to grumbling is remembering. I know that seems simplistic, but remembering. See, the art of forgetfulness leads to joy-stealing, faith-ravaging, grumbling. But the art of remembrance leads to faith-flourishing, light-shining, joy-experiencing life. Remember that illustration I gave to you about the $10 million? We are to not complain about how complicated the taxes will be this year on that. With the inheritance we are given from Christ, we are to withdraw from that every day. Withdraw what we need. Look at the great inheritance we've been given by Jesus. I'm going to withdraw from that today, knowing that as I work it out, he's working it in. That's what I'm going to do today. That's what I'm going to do with this incredible inheritance. We draw from it every day. It's waiting for us every day. We work out what he's working in. And so we withdraw from this grand gospel gift every day. Our deliverance is even greater than that of the Israelites from their bondage in Egypt. We live on the other side of the cross and all that Jesus has accomplished for us, where Jesus died to free us from the bondage to sin and to raise us from spiritual death to life. And yet we're inclined to grumble. So we must remember. Remember the inheritance, the redemption, the deliverance, and the provision that we have in Jesus. Is Eric Little a name that rings a bell to you? Eric Little? One of the best movies with the best soundtracks ever, right? I'm going to do it and make everyone feel awkward. Right? So good. So good. Okay. Chariots of Fire is the name of the movie based on Eric Little's experience. Eric Little was a Scottish athlete, runner, uh, represented Scotland in the 1924 Paris Olympics. I think it's 1924. And... Um, he was the favorite to win the 100-meter dash. And yet, for the 1924 Paris Olympics, it was set to be raced on a Sunday. And because he was this devout follower of Jesus who had this Sabbath rhythm of Sundays, no work, no labor, no sports, any of that, he was not willing to run the race. Now, this enraged much of the country of Scotland because he was their great hope at a gold medal. Come on, your fanaticism is getting in the way of our great hope of national pride and a gold medal. Could you just get over it and run the race? And he wouldn't do it. He wasn't the favorite, nor was it his favorite race to run, the 400-meter dash. But that was uh, a race that he not only went in but, but ran, set a record, and won gold for. And that, that race is the, 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 really the, the, the climax of the Chariots of Fire movie. But the thing about that is that that's not the most impressive thing about Eric Little. That wasn't the most impressive part of his life. It wasn't the most remarkable part. Little was a son of missionaries to China and became a missionary to China himself shortly after those Olympics concluded. 
And during the Japanese occupation of China in World War II, he found himself in an internment camp, separated from his pregnant wife and two daughters who were across the world. Yet, Little poured himself out for the people of that camp. He poured himself out for the hundreds of children that were separated from their families as he was his own. Over time, the residents of the camp, as you can imagine, started to grow weary. They started to grumble about waiting in line for every meal, about waiting in line just to use a filthy outhouse. People started stealing from each other and hoard resources. Theologian Langdon Gilkey, who was a professor in China at that time, theologian, was also at the camp and commented, unfortunately, that the missionaries and clergy that were there were just as selfish as everyone else, just as greedy, just as much grumblers as the next people. But he noticed that there was one person who was different, Eric Little. Gilkey wrote this, Often in an evening, I would see him bent over a chessboard or a model boat or directing some sort of square dance. He must not have been Mennonite. <laughs> Absorbed, weary, and interested, pouring all of himself into this effort to capture the imagination of these pent-up youths. He was overflowing with good humor and love for life, with enthusiasm and charm. It is rare indeed, Gilkey went on to write, that a person has the good fortune to meet a saint, but he came as close to it as anyone I have ever known. Everyone in that camp was grumbling about something, except for Eric Little. He shone like the stars in the sky, shining among them in that camp. When Little unexpectedly died in the camp of an undiagnosed brain tumor, the whole camp was stunned for days, especially the hundreds of children that looked up to him and who were poured into by Little. This is what happens when we pour ourselves out. This is what happens when we don't give in to the grumbling that surrounds us, but remember our inheritance and lean into it. Love into it, love out of it, serve out of it. We start to shine like stars in the dark world around us that just can't stop grumbling. Eric Little and the Apostle Paul take their cues from Jesus. In Isaiah 53, it quotes this about Jesus as a prophetic word. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus lived a life full of hardship, rejection, sorrow, and pain, and yet not once did Jesus grumble and complain, even when he went to the cross. And on that cross, Jesus died for our grumbling. Are you a grumbler? Well, praise Jesus that he died for all your grumbling words. He, he was able to do that because he kept himself from grumbling. And so we get his spotless record. See, Jesus suffered the most, as we learned in our previous passage, and he did so without grumbling. 
Jesus holds out his example for us to emulate and provides his indwelling Holy Spirit to help us. And thankfully, it doesn't depend on us. The same grace that saved us is the same grace that continues to sustain us and continue to propel our growth. Yeah, sure, we are to work it out every day, but we are always to remember that he's working it in as we do. So here, here's a, here's a challenge for you this week and onward. Every moment that you're tempted to grumble, think about this. God wants to sanctify you. And he wants to make you shine in the world. Every instance that you're tempted to grumble in the coming days, think about this. God wants me to work this out as he's working it in. He wants to sanctify me. He doesn't want me to grumble. He wants me to shine for him in this moment. And when we rejoice, when everyone else is grumbling, we will shine like the stars in the night sky. Here's why Paul's connecting not grumbling as a primary implication of the gospel, that how we live would be seen by others and make them attracted to God. That's, that we're not trying to debate people and twist their arms to come to God, but that people would say, how do you live like that? How do you love like that? How do you forgive like that? How are you not commenting on that? Because that shines. You know you were made to shine, right? You know, follower of Jesus, that your discipleship was supposed to make you shine, right? Let's be a people striving for Christ-likeness, knowing he's working it in as we work it out. And let's be the kind of community, faith community, church community, that speak light to each other. Not a grumbling word, a word jam-packed with the light of the gospel. Can you imagine? That remind one another of the beauty of the gospel. Lift each other up as we lay our own lives down and endure, like Eric Little, like the Apostle Paul, like Jesus displayed for us and works in. Let's pray. Jesus, ah, oh, you know I'm a grumbler. <laughs> you know I'm a grumbler. How I always say to myself, ah, oh, I don't get to preach an agassi again this week. Ah, oh, I'm so frustrated. You know I grumble, Lord, about a myriad of things. If anyone here were to ask my wife, I would ask her not to answer how much I grumble. You know it. She knows it. All the people close know it. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm tempted to say that many in this room know exactly what we've been talking about, that temptation constantly there, tip of our tongue in every circumstance. Oh, Jesus, thank you for sanctification. Thank you for present salvation that you work in, what we are to work out. Lord, would you help us? That, that's the promise that exists in this text. You will help us. You will change us as we strive. And as we do, Lord, it's for a great purpose that people would see you shining through us. We ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen.